Last week, we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar had built a massive statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and it was out of gold. This was in response to a dream that he had and Daniel had interpreted for him. This dream was a warning and a prophecy against King Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom would fade away. So what does he do? In defiance, he makes a statue. He makes people bow down whenever they hear the music or the sound of any instrument and to bow down and worship the statue, which represented him and his gods. Daniel's three friends, who we know in the text by their Babylonian names in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, you know the story, they refused to bow down. They disobeyed the king's order, and as a result, they were thrown in a burning, fiery furnace. But to the king's surprise, they were rescued. No fire, the fire had no power over them, as the Lord Jesus appeared in the fire with them and kept them safe. The king then acknowledged that their God was the true God. And he made a law saying that everyone had It was against the law for anyone to say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up the statue as was very prominent in the text last week. But he learned and we learned that it was God who sets up kings and tears down kings. And this is the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar's life. He is not in control. He's not in charge. God is. He is there by God's decree and by God's providence. It was God who sent him to Judah to get his people in to take them to Babylon. Not Nebuchadnezzar's power or might or glory. It all comes from God. And Nebuchadnezzar has a very valuable lesson to learn about his life and the true God. Let's look at chapter 4 verse 1. Interestingly, chapter 4 begins with the conclusion of the story. It's not usually how stories are told, right? The, the conclusion of Nebuchadnezzar's experience that's about to happen comes first in the first three verses. Let's see what he says. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. You would think that this comes on the heel of what happens in the burning fiery furnace as He issues a law for everyone not to say anything bad against the God of Israel. However, that is not the sequence here. We are told of Nebuchadnezzar's praise and repentance first, and then how he got there. Because what it says here is that that God has done these signs and wonders for him, and that he acknowledges that God's kingdom is the everlasting kingdom, and that his dominion endures from generation to generation. That is not something Nebuchadnezzar knows at the end of chapter 3. But at the end of chapter 4, he will. He will. Notice that this address is given to the same people whom he commanded to bow down and worship the statue. He now gives them peace, where before he had issued them a warning of death if they didn't worship him or else. And what makes this so different 
And again, as we've said, signs and wonders done for me. At this point, God had not done any signs and wonders for him. It was wonders and signs that he saw through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 3 is more proof that this declaration happens at the end of this story that's coming. And because of what he's learned, he knows the truth. And this is what we've entitled this series, Everlasting Kingdom. But how did he reach this conclusion? Like, how, I mean, how did he break? Like, what was his breaking point? What happened to him that made this all come? And what we know and see in this story, and what we've known from the beginning of King Nebuchadnezzar, is that he, his problem is pride. That's his big sin and his big downfall. And so the answer to pride is humility. So how will he be humbled? Let's look at verse 4, because that's where the story really begins. And this is the words of Nebuchadnezzar himself, his testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. And prospering in my palace, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So here's the second dream that the king has. This is different than the first one from chapter 2. Here's the second one. The first one was pretty bad. This one alarms him just as much. And so what does he do? Well, He calls in for all of his people again, you know, the people who can interpret the dreams. Look at verse 6. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of this dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Just like last time, none of the best and brightest in all of Babylon could tell the king what his dream meant. At least this time, the king has some favor on them by actually telling them the dream. Remember last time, he's like, tell me what I dreamed and what it means. Okay, well, tell us what you dreamed. I'm not going to tell you that. At least this time, he says, here's the dream. But they were so puzzled by the dream They could not come to an answer, and perhaps they didn't want to give the king the wrong answer in fear for their own lives. Look at verse 8. At last, Daniel came in. And Daniel has a pretty good resume up until this point, doesn't he? At last, Daniel came in before me, he whose name was Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Essentially, what he's saying here is, Daniel, I know who your God is. Your God told me the last dream. And I know nothing can be hidden from you. And if you gave me that one, I know you can give me this one. And that nothing is too difficult for you and your God. So tell me what this dream means. So here it goes, Daniel. I'm going to lay it out on the line. Verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar says. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. 
and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, this guy can dream dreams. Some weird dreams, right? We said last time maybe he should stop eating pizza before he goes to bed. But apparently, you know, we know that these dreams aren't pizza-induced. They're from God himself. And this dream is loaded with symbolism. Again, if you didn't catch it, he dreams of this giant tree that is so big that it reached the heavens. That's a big tree. And its branches went so far out and everyone, the beasts, the birds, was fed from its fruit, received shade and shelter and protection from this dream. But the bad thing is that the tree was chopped down, and only a stump remained. What does this mean, Daniel? What in the world does this mean? First of all, as you can imagine, it's loaded with symbolism, loaded with imagery that cannot be ignored. Before we get to the meaning, and Daniel gives us the meaning, we don't even have to speculate, there's things that cannot be missed in this dream, and the allusions that are being made to previous biblical occurrences. First of all, in this dream, there's a massive tree. So far, like we said, it reached heaven. Does that not remind you of what happened in Genesis chapter 11? with the building of the Tower of Babel. If you remember back in Genesis 11, the people there wanted to build this huge tower that reached heavens because they wanted to make a name for themselves. And where did they build it? In the plains of Shinar, which is where? Downtown Babylon. Well, probably, you know, off the outskirts, but... In the plains of Shinar... And it was the same place that Nebuchadnezzar built that statue of gold. There's a lot of connection here. Nebuchadnezzar wants to make a name for himself, just like the people of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves to reach the heavens. Very symbolic. Eden. We see imagery of Eden here too. Why? Because in the middle of Eden, there was a tree. 
And in this tree, God says, don't eat of its fruit. For if you do, the day you will surely die. The imagery of an important tree that gives fruit reminds us and takes us back to the garden. Adam and Eve could have whatever they wanted. But what was the sin of Adam and Eve? Pride. The same sin that the people who built the Tower of Babel had. Pride. The same sin that Adam and Eve had. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This dream is loaded with symbolism and imagery and takes us back to the garden, takes us back to the Tower of Babel. All of these stories have the same thing connected, pride. And if we were to examine each of our hearts today, I could tell you that we all have something in common here as well. Pride. I mean, last week, I, I think I surprised some of you when I got to the end of the sermon and I told you that, you know, typically when you hear a sermon on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're all, be like Shadrach and be like Abednego and Meshach. And there's yeah, analogies there that we could obviously model their example of standing up and what's for what's right. But I told you at the end of the sermon that we're not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember who I said we were? We were Nebuchadnezzar. We're the ones who's defying God by our pride. And so when we read this story, I want you to keep that in mind. That we're not just like looking at Nebuchadnezzar as someone distant from our experience because we battle the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar. We may not be building a giant 90-foot statue and commanding all people to worship it at the sound of our music. But we do so in other subtle ways that we probably don't even consider. And that's really the whole theme of this dream. Pride. Pride. It's what God needs to, to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar and this big tree that's about to be chopped down. Look at verse 19. So Daniel heard the dream. What does he do? Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. It's not that Daniel didn't have the answer. It's just that the answer was troubling. Because what he had, the answer and who he had to communicate it to because of who it was about, the king answered and says to him, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Daniel answers back and says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Let me tell you why I'm so troubled to tell you what it means. Because this is not good news for you. This is good news for your enemies. And I'm just going to tell you the way it is. But I don't want you walking away from here thinking that it's all good. You should be greatly troubled and bothered. And the king says, just tell me, just tell me, I know that you can do this. Look at verse 20. The tree you saw, Daniel says, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which 
was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. The tree you saw represents you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Huge tree that is strong, with strong roots, so tall that it reaches the heavens, and it could be seen to the end of the world. And that was true by, of Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone knew about him. Everyone knew about Babylon. His kingdom and other nations feared him and Babylon and their might and his wealth and glory and military conquest was known by all. He is this tree that everyone can see wherever they are. And the leaves and the fruit, they're beautiful and abundant, giving shelter and shade, protection to all who relied upon it and submitted to this tree. The birds come and nest in the tree, and the beasts find shade, and people come and eat from the fruit. Nebuchadnezzar controls the global economy of the day. He gives protection like a mafia boss. He gives food and provisions to all who want and wish to submit to him. Your power has grown, O king, just like this tree, that the whole world relies on you, beasts and birds and people and food, and all comes back to you. So far, so good, right? I mean, if that's all he dreamed... Great dream. Sweet dreams, Nebuchadnezzar. But it gets, it's about to get worse. That's not the whole dream. If you remember the first dream, remember there was that stone that came from heaven to smash the feet of the statue. And then when that happened, the statue disintegrated like chaff in the wind. That happens again. In a different way. Just like the first dream had a bad ending for Nebuchadnezzar, so will this second dream. And again, how did Nebuchadnezzar respond to the first dream? The first dream means your kingdom doesn't last forever. You're just the top of the head, but after you is coming other kingdoms and they all fade too. What does he do? He builds a whole statue of gold saying, I'm everybody and I'm not going anywhere in defiance to God. Well, the second dream, of course, he doesn't learn his lesson, so God's teaching him here again. You're about to be chopped down. You're going to be chopped down. Look at verse 23. Daniel says that there is a holy watcher coming. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This watcher is another word in the Old Testament for angel. Just as the heavenly being destroys the statue, so does a heavenly being destroy this huge tree. He comes and announces, chop it down. Think of the might of this huge tree so big. And tall to chop down that tree takes a lot of might and power. 
someone more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar. Someone more powerful and sharper than Nebuchadnezzar's might. Chop down the tree, but leave the stump in the ground. You leave the stump in the ground, the tree is not totally dead, right? It could grow back. It could, it could, it's not completely over. They didn't uproot the stump or cut off all its roots. The stump is still there, which means what? The Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's going to be chopped down, even though his glory is going to be brought down, there's still hope for him. There's still hope that he will come back to his senses. This great tree that at one point all the world could see would be chopped down so that nobody could no longer see it from all around the world. Just like Nebuchadnezzar will be brought down by the might and wrath of God so that no one can see him in his past glory as they once saw him. The dew of heaven. You, the tree is going to lay on the ground. It's going to be wet from the dew of heaven. What does that mean? It's going to be wet with the ground is what it means, literally. The morning comes. The grass is wet from dew. It waters the ground. You're going to be laying on the ground just like the tree will be laying on the ground. And here's something else amazing. And let his portion be with the beast of the fields till seven times, seven periods of time pass over him. The tree would be like the animals. The tree would then become what the animals are. For how long? Seven periods of time. That's another interesting word. Some people think it means seven years. Does it mean seven months, seven seasons, or seven, the number of, in the Bible, that's completeness, fullness? Does this mean until the time comes that God's wrath and judgment are complete, this is how long this will last? Just like the furnace was heated seven times hotter. Well, did they have a thermometer on there? No, they just heated it as hot as it could be. Whether or not it refers to a unit of time or figurative language, it doesn't matter. God would have his complete and full justice on Nebuchadnezzar. He would not escape God. But then Daniel is about to drop another bomb on him of what will become of his future if he does not stop his wicked ways. Because here's the hope in this for Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 24, this is the interpretation. Let's just give it to me, Daniel. Enough explaining. Give it to me. O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. O king, you will be judged by God. You will leave your kingly palace and be exiled to the wilderness to eat grass like an ox. You'll be homeless the great and mighty Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah. His palace, his gardens, his money, gone. He shall be like the beast. He's going to be crazy like an animal. He's literally going to go through a period of insanity. In verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel in his dream, let his mind be changed from a man's 
and let a beast mind be given to him. Literally, for this period of time that he is chopped down, he will think he's an animal, a wild beast. He acted like a beast in his life, and now God treats him like he was acting. Literally homeless, living off the land, eating grass, homeless, wet because he's sleeping outside every night, waking up, going crazy. What a judgment. Nebuchadnezzar, high and mighty, proud and glorious, now brought low. This tree, which everyone can see, is now chopped down like never before. This is the point. This is why Daniel was alarmed at the dream. This is good news for your enemies, O king, but not for you. Everything's been building up to this point, building up to this point. Remember in chapter 3, the emphasis was on what? Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue. The, ne- the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nine times we're told in chapter 3 that he set up that statue, setting up his kingdom. And the very thing God wants him to know is, you don't do that. You think you're all that in a bag of chips. You're not. Every power, every glory, every ounce of wealth you have is because of me. I put you there, Nebuchadnezzar, and I will take you down when I want. Kind of reminds me of what my parents used to tell me. I brought you in this world, and I'll take you out. Oh, you too. Okay. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is sovereign, but he's not. Remember Daniel's prayer. Oh, God, you are the God who sets up kings and tears down kings. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get that. Everything has gone to his head. We see this in the statue he builds, but that... It's all about to be blown away like chaff in the wind. This is all going to be down like a huge tree that falls down, chopped down. And you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's right. Nebuchadnezzar's demise will be loud, loud. And everyone will see what happens to him. But Daniel says here in verse 25 expounding on the seven periods of time. Again, seven years, seven seasons, doesn't matter. Fullness of completion of God's judgment. Till you know, until you know, how long will this last? How long will he be crazy like an ox eating grass, sleeping outside, being wet with the dew of heaven? Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God doesn't start the timer and say, you're a timeout for seven years. You've probably done that with your children. Go to your room for X amount of time. This is not timeout for Nebuchadnezzar. You will be like this, humbled. Because remember, this is the antidote for for pride is what? Humility. How am I humbling you? And how long will I humble you? Until you know what? 
that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You are not God, Nebuchadnezzar. I am. And until you realize that and submit to me, you will be like this. The full complete time, seven times of seasons, seven periods of time. Wow. God has shown him this. In the fiery furnace, you're not God. Look, I saved my boys. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? Show me the God who will rescue you from my wrath. God showed him. God showed him in the first dream. God showed him in the second dream. This is all coming to a stunning conclusion. You're not going to repent? Fine. I'll chop down your kingdom. I'll make you go crazy. I'll make you eat grass like an ox. I'll make you sleep outside so that you wake up every morning knowing that the dew of heaven where I live covers your body till you realize that it's from me and I'm keeping you here until you know that I'm more glorious than you. Fine. Until you know that it's me who put you in your position and it's me who will take you out when I'm done with you. Wow. Again, we see the sovereignty of the glory of God from the beginning of the Bible to the end. No matter how great and mighty people are, God is still more glorious than that. And everything we have, everything the best of the richest person or the most powerful person in the world, they don't have anything apart from the hand of a sovereign God who by his decree even uses them in their wickedness until he's done with them. Because he's telling a story that will be told and God gets to say when it starts and when it ends. And God's will will not be thwarted. Not by any crazy lunatic like Nebuchadnezzar. But there's so much mercy in this dream. Before we just see this as judgment, 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 there is great mercy. God doesn't have to give Nebuchadnezzar any dream to warn him. God could take his life on the spot if he so chose. But God, by his mercy, through Daniel, gives a plea of repentance to the king. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Daniel says, all right, king, listen, you got to listen to me. You got to do what I'm going to tell you to do. You have to. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You, you want to stay in your position of power? Then you need to change your ways. You are a sinful man, O Nebuchadnezzar, and unless you repent and trust in the true God, you'll be chopped down like that tree. If you want your rule and reign and prosperity to continue, then you need to change your ways and repent and turn to him. Daniel is not giving Nebuchadnezzar here some kind of works salvation, like do this and you'll be saved. No, no, no. It's, it's a message of repentance. He's calling the king to repentance. You can't stay the same way. What Daniel is doing is saying to the king, and what God's message in this dream is, humble yourself, Nebuchadnezzar. 
You want everyone else to bow the knee to you. I'm saying I'm greater than you. You bow the knee to me. Humble yourself to the true and holy God that I am. That's what God's saying to him. God is merciful to the wicked. He's merciful. The fact that he leads, lets any of us breathe another second in our rebellion is by his mercy. One of the Puritans, some favorite dead guy that I have, I can't remember who. He says, whenever we draw our breath, with every breath we breathe, we suck in mercy from God. It's like Isaiah commands the wicked to repent as well. In Isaiah 55, verse 6, Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Yes, O king, repent. Change your ways. If you will not repent, then you're going to be like that tree, gone crazy, like an ox, until you realize who is sovereign, the true sovereign. Friends, know this. That the conclusion and pathway of pride will always lead to humility. Always. That's the end of pride. But here's the thing. Either we humble ourselves or God will humble us. At the end, there's humility. You can't escape it. It's always, that's the end goal. That's the end result of pride. And the choice is this, humble yourself or let God humble you. Letting God humble you is painful. Submitting to God and worshiping Him is what God has called us to do. Again, it goes back to pride. Pride in our hearts, pride in Nebuchadnezzar. This is what happened with Satan in the beginning. Who is Satan? He's an angel who tried to usurp God's authority to be like the Most High. What did God do? He humbled him. He cast him down out of heaven with a third of the heavenly host. This is what happened in the garden, as we said. Adam and Eve disobeyed God because of pride. God humbled them. What did God do? He kicked them out of the garden and cursed them. This is what happened in Genesis 6 when God flooded the world. When in the days of Noah, they said, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. What did God do? He humbled them. He flooded the earth, saved Noah, a righteous man, and his family. This is what happened at the Tower of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves and build a building so great and high to reach heaven. What did God do? He humbled them, gave them different languages, confused them, and scattered them around the world. This is what happened to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses said, let God says, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no, no, no. What did God do? He sent 10 plagues until finally Pharaoh humbled himself to say, get them out of here. And this is what will happen to King Nebuchadnezzar if he doesn't repent. God will humble him. And this is what the streams abound. You're like that tree that will be chopped down, made crazy to think you're an animal. You know what pride is? 
Pride is counterfeit worship. That's what pride is. It's stealing the glory for oneself. Glory does not belong to us. Any ounce of glory in this world rightfully belongs to God alone. God doesn't share his glory with anyone or anything or anybody. God will not be mocked. Don't be fooled, friends. You either humble yourself or God will humble you. This is the pattern of Scripture. This is the pattern of our lives. And perhaps you have experienced the humbling of God in your life. I know I have. And although it was painful, it's what the Lord used to sanctify me, to make me what He wanted me to be. And it hurts. It hurts. But God is good. And He gives more grace. Like James says in chapter 4, we read it earlier. James 4, 6 through 10. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is. You want to be proud? Go ahead. Be proud. God will humble you. You want want to humble yourself? Then you will experience the grace of God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, he says. Resist the devil. He will flee. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Then he says in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. You see, the world says, and our flesh says, to build ourselves up. That the way up in life is to keep climbing and to make yourself a great name so people can be proud of you and worship you and applaud you. That's what the world says. Be proud. Have great pride. The way up is to go up. And to keep climbing up. But what does God say? No, actually it's the opposite. The way up is actually the way down. You want to be exalted? You humble yourself. You humble yourself and let God exalt you. You don't exalt yourself. If you do, then God will humble you. It always ends the same way. It always ends the same way. There is no doubt that one of the great modern movements, when I say great, not wonderful great, and I'm talking about great in numbers, and it's increasing every day, is what's called the pride movement. Is there any connection there? You better believe it. To rebel in the face of God and against His law and good order and design. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And in the end, we don't look to Daniel. You know where this is going to end up. It's going to end up in Jesus somehow, right? So just get ready, okay? We don't humble ourselves. We're not the epitome of humility. We never are. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? If anyone, if anyone had any right to boast in oneself, had any right to come and say, look at me. Look how awesome I am and look how powerful I am. It was him because he is God incarnate. He is the eternal God, the son of God. But when Jesus came, he didn't do that, did he? Instead, this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. 
that our great example of humility is the Lord Jesus. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's our pattern of humility. The way up is not up. The way up is down. It becomes acknowledging your weakness, your shortcomings, your sin, your humanness, your desperate need for God in all things, your acknowledgement that everything I have accumulated and possessed and earned is not for me. It's a gift of the grace of God. Friends, we have nothing in which we could boast about. Paul also says this. Paul lists all of his accomplishments, and he says, let them be considered as dung for the sake of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. They're all worthless. Why? Because from a human standpoint, I did it. But the truth is, is that everything I have is given to me by the grace of God. Therefore, I exalt Him in all things that I have and possess and have accumulated and acquired and have received all accolades. See, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing wrong. It's me, me, I, I. I'm the greatest. I'm God. Everyone bow down, worship me. I'm going to last forever. And God says, really? Well, let's teach you a little lesson. But it comes with a plea of repentance. Oh, Daniel says to him, listen to my counsel. Break off your sins. Practice mercy for the oppressed. Humble yourself before the face of an almighty God. I don't have to ask if anyone struggles with pride in this room. I know we all do. It just manifests itself in different ways. For some of us, it's the never-ending selfies on Facebook. Right? The never-ending grasp for attention. Not that selfies are bad or sinful, but sometimes the motivations of our heart could be, look at me, look at me. Pride, pride. Is that the root of all sin? Let's crucify in the name of Jesus Christ who has died for that sin to redeem us to God. Let us heed the warning of Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar to repent and trust in God, for he alone is glorious. Let's pray. Oh God, help us. What a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. 
Father, it's something that we all face, just like Eden and Babel and Pharaoh. The story always ends the same. The pride of man's heart leads to all sin and wickedness and rebellion to God. We just display pride in different ways, in ways that maybe other people can't see, and our pride shown is is different than other people's sins. But God, it's all the same. It's all wicked. It's all trying to rob you of your glory. It's counterfeit worship. Help us, Lord, to repent, trust in Christ. For believers in here, I pray that they would look to their Savior as the perfect example of humility and who has died for their sins and encourage them, God, that they are being made new, being sanctified by the Spirit, being made holy more every day. Father, for those in here who have not trusted in Christ, who have not become born again, I pray that they would humble themselves in this moment to understand that they need a Savior, that they can't save themselves, that they can't purchase their own salvation. They're not going to heaven because of who their family is or what denomination they are or how much Bible knowledge they have or how much money they give. God, that they would humble themselves to know that they are at your mercy and grace and throw themselves at the feet of a crucified and risen Lord who has promised salvation to all who would believe in him. Let this humility be present in these hearts in that way. And Lord, help us now as we observe the Lord's Supper as you've commanded us to help us know what you've done, to encourage us, even though we have pride in our hearts, that you've died for that sin. And Lord, help us to repent and obey you in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The deacons will join me up front. We will observe communion.